Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm on a journey of discovering what loving oneself actually looks like. I want to invite you into my process, hear some of my crazy stories, as well as hear some amazing people with wisdom and insight give their take on what it looks like to love yourself well, and in turn, be able to love people well too. Come on, let's go. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, to episode 13 of Like Me, Like You. I realize uh, all of the stories that I've told so far has been such a jump uh, forward and then backward into my life and into my story. So I just thought I would lay some groundwork and talk about um, my family and talk about uh, how I got to the U.S. and specifically uh, an experience that I had in Indiana and uh, the time that I spent in Indiana living there. It's where I graduated from high school and I'll, I just want to uh, kind of start to walk you through a layout and kind of give you a feel for who I am and um, why I have the stories that I have and how I've come to tell the stories that I have. So I am Canadian, of course. My parents are Canadian. I was born in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Canada, which is uh, on an island called Cape Breton off the coast of Nova Scotia. It's way above Maine on the East Coast in a clump of islands um, called the Maritimes. So there is uh, Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island, Cape Breton, and then included in that is a province called New Brunswick. Um when I was a child, my, my dad was a pastor in a little town called Lewisburg, and that was his first church. He pastored there. He built a church, and we then went to New Brunswick, Moncton, New Brunswick, where he also built and pastored a church there. From New Brunswick, he was offered a position at a church in Lemon, South Dakota, and I was by then, I think I was 13 or 14 in Lemon, South Dakota, and we traveled and moved all the way from the Maritimes of Canada to the plains of the Dakotas, which I know that I've told you this a bit before. And there he pastored for almost three years and in high school moved from Lemon, Indiana to a place, or sorry, Lemon, South Dakota to a place called Connorsville, Indiana. And Indiana was just a different beast. Uh, you had to the to the west of us. I think fifty five minutes west was Indianapolis, and fifty five minutes east was um, Ohio. There was like a what's the big city in Ohio? Anyway, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio. So it was right in between there. We're kind of like the southeastern border of Indiana, and. Uh, this town was an industrial town. It was a factory town. They had multiple factories. They had a Ford plant. They had like a Boeing 747 plant. They had another plant that made those tubes at banks that you like put your deposit in and it gets sucked up and to the bank. Um, they made those there. It was a very like industrial blue collar town. Um, mixed in with that is a lot of like old thinking, kind of like Southern old thinking that even in areas of the South that have gone on and progressed and like don't think that way anymore. For some reason, that type of old thinking was still very present in this town in Indiana. I remember the first weekend that we moved there. 
uh, from South Dakota, which was an awesome experience. Like South Dakota was just a healing time. It was just oh, a place where uh, people are just like the salt of the earth, people really kind, really giving, really generous with their time and with their resources. And it was an awesome experience as a kid, um, especially in school. A lot of the kids had their heads on straight. They were these very like responsible, like ranch kids who, you know, before they went to school in the morning, had to get up and do chores, you know, like that was foreign to me. Um, I helped my mom clean into the dishes and clean my room and did those kind of chores, but I didn't like take care of livestock kind of chores. And so it kind of set a precedent for my sister and I that like education is important and like working on your grades is important and going and furthering your education is important. That was all instilled in South Dakota, like that you can be responsible and be a teenager was instilled. The whole entire town in South Dakota, like everybody participated in um, like youth groups, like everybody went to church, everybody participate. They actually was so prominent in like church activities that on Wednesdays in the town, there were no sports practices. There were no sports games, nothing like that, because it was dedicated for like youth nights. So all the churches in that town on Wednesdays had youth group, which I just thought is crazy. Like you never, ever hear of that anymore. So we left that town on really good terms, and my dad was asked to take a church in Connersville, Indiana. And I remember when we went to visit, my sister and I giggled, and we said, like, no, we're never coming back here. Like, thank God, there's no, there's no way that dad will move us here. There's no way. And weren't we fooled? Because lo and behold... I think it was a month or two later, he announced, like, I really feel like I'm supposed to go there. Um, some really good things happen in Indiana. One is uh, my sister met her husband, Jeff, because we lived in and- Indiana. And the reason why is we went to Connersville, Indiana. The church in Lemon, South Dakota became vacant. My uncle Wayne in Windsor, Ontario, decided and and applied to go to South Dakota, and they asked him to come. So we got to meet um, through saying goodbye to my Uncle Wayne and his children and his wife. We got to meet Jeff, who was attending their church. And funny story, um, when we were living in Indiana and my uncle was just five hours north of us in Windsor, Ontario, he called my dad one day and said, hey, Bill, I want to invite you to fast with me. Now, fasting is something, if you don't know what it is, is something um, where you kind of deny yourself or sacrifice something. It can be food. It can be water. It can, you know, it can be media, social media. It could be television. It could be, it could be whatever you find you spend a lot of time on. And my uncle asked my dad, would you fast with me? There is a, a family in our church who has a son named Jeff and he is just going down the wrong road. He's getting in trouble with the law. He's doing drugs. He's, you know, just in real bad shape and they're really nervous for him. He's been arrested a few times. He, you know, has to go to court. All of these things about Jeff that uh, were issues. And he was not a believer, did not believe in Jesus, was not interested. And he said, we just want to go on a 40-day fast for him because we're just really concerned for him. And we just want to believe that God is going to do something amazing. And my dad was like, yeah, I'll fast. Sure, I'll fast. And so they fasted for Jeff. And I believe it was either on or right after the 40-day fast 
Jeff came to church with his parents and just had an experience with God that changed his life forever. Little did my dad know that he was fasting for my sister's future husband. He had no idea that this was the guy that my sister would later marry. So I find that just really kind and interesting of the Lord that he would kind of like just set this whole thing up and that my dad would take invitations to partake in something that ended up giving him four grandkids and uh, a great son-in-law. So that all happened in Indiana. But there are also a lot of terrible things that happened in Indiana. And it kind of marked me. And, um, you know, uh, one, if you go back to my previous episodes, uh, I believe the episode is called Riding in Trucks with Boys. That happened in Indiana. I was scarred for a long time because of uh, that experience in Indiana. And I have so, so many more. Um, the first weekend we moved into, into Connorsville, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally right downtown. And I remember my mom just crying and looking at my dad and saying like, oh, what have we done? Like, what have we done? That is so foreign. That was so foreign to us. Um, not only us as like Christians and believers, like we, I do not believe that way. I do not think that way. I do not agree with that. Um, but as Canadians, there is, there is, that is not a thing in Canada. Like that, um, that type of racial uh, tension and belief of like hate towards somebody because of their race is a non-existent thing. So it was foreign to us on all accounts. Um, and we moved in to this house and my sister and I at that point were in high school, I think. Uh, she, yeah, we were in high school and she was almost graduating. Like she was kind of close to being out the door and I was not, I was like going into the 10th grade or they call here that that's a Canadian thing. What do they call it here? A sophomore. Yeah. It was a sophomore in high school and, um, met a, met a boy named Chris and I dated a few Chris's in my, in my life and I learned a lesson to just never date another Chris because I, I don't know if it's correlated with the name, but man, there's some rough, some rough experiences with guys named Chris. Anyway, um, so uh, dated Chris, was very naive, was very quiet. I was very shy, believe it or not. And the church that my dad uh, pastored, we were placed there because of a previous experience with a pastor. So there, the pastor before my father, um, f- what we call fell, fell sexually. He ha- he had a, um, he had made some major mistakes and was caught, and therefore was removed from his position. When that happens, um, there is a lot that goes on in parishioners in their hearts and their minds. There's a trust that's broken. They start to question everything, which means, you know, a a pastor usually represents, you know, a father also represents leadership also represents, you know, they're speaking on behalf of the Lord. So people are looking to them in authority, in um, a place of spiritual, you know, fatherhood. And when that is broken, uh, it causes a lot of question. It causes a lot of, um, distrust, not only with people and with the church in general, but also with God. So it's a big deal. And so we kind of go in there as a family and my dad is just trying to help these people heal. But what I realize is these people actually don't want to heal. They're actually really angry and they're looking for someone to blame. And unfortunately, it just kind of falls on my dad for the next couple of years. 
So it's not a good experience. We're having a rough time in general, you know, and I am in high school just trying to make it. And the sad thing is the pastor that had been removed decided to stay in town and work and start his own church. So my sister and I were going to school with his daughters who were the same age as us. And we didn't even know anyone. We were brand new to town, walked in, and she was, they were already talking about us, spreading rumors that my dad stole their dad's job, that, you know, this is a small town in Indiana. So if you can imagine being the new kid, there's rumors about you you already don't know about. Like, you have no idea what's going on. You don't know who anyone is. And you're getting a feel very quickly for who people are and what they're like. And um, which, if you ever meet pastor's kids... After hanging out with them for any length of time, you pick up pretty quick. They either like in love with Jesus and have had to like walk through this whole healing process because of wounds that they've experienced from broken people. It happens to everyone in the church or, you know, issues with their families or whatever because of the dynamics of being a pastor and being in ministry or, uh, you know, pastors, kids who actually hate the church, hate God hate people and they're bitter. There's like, it's usually one or the other. It's, it's a pretty, uh, rough gig that you've, you don't even ask for. You're just, you're just granted it and that's it. You're given it and that's your job. So, um, so my sister and I are really just trying, we left this amazing place in South Dakota where people were just close knit and the whole community loved one another and everyone was active in the church to now this, and uh, it was a little uh, whiplashy. My sister and I were on a little bit of a roller coaster ride. My sister, like I said before, she was beautiful in high school. She was, you know, had this red hair and she was quirky and she was just stunning. And uh, she didn't care what people thought of her. So guys would just flock, flock to her. They would just be in awe of her. And I was more sporty and I like was a little bit of a tomboy and I liked to play soccer and I played volleyball and I could do all the things that the boys could do and it was kind of a night and day experience and my sister was about two inches taller than me I always thought she was skinnier than me even though I was like athletically fit I had I was muscular from head to toe I was sleek and a mean a mean soccer playing machine you know um but I didn't look like my sister so uh, I was very shy, withdrawn, very quiet, not not with people who knew me, not with people who loved me, but um, in general, in large in large spaces around a lot of people. And so I started to date a guy named Chris and it was rough, man. It was my first boyfriend. Um, he had a lot of issues at home. I think his mom was murdered when he was three and it caused like all kinds of just issues, major issues. And uh, he didn't know how to, like, he didn't know how to feel feelings. He didn't know how to monitor his feelings. He didn't know how to work through anger. I mean, it was rough. And so I was quiet, very shy, and uh, he just kind of used that to his advantage. We had some very uh, difficult dating experiences. You know, I'd never kissed a boy until I was 16, and it was Chris. Chris was my first kiss. And uh, I remember one time in a youth group, he punched me. Like, that's, that's the type of guy he was. So he got angry with me and punched me, um, you know. So uh, quickly realized this is not going to work. Ended up breaking up with Chris. 
because of a crazy event. My sister had a, uh, we had a guy in our church over at our house. We have, that's what we did. We were the pastor's house. Like that's people came over all the time and kids came to hang out and youth came to watch movies. And there was a guy over at our house and he didn't approve. And he was so angry. He sent himself and his friends, all the football team over to the house to drag this guy out of our basement. Could you imagine at the pastor's house, a football team shows up to fight this guy. So um, I kick him out. I kick all of his friends out. Couldn't believe what was happening. Called him, broke up with him over the phone. I was so angry. He was so mad. He sent his dad to our house. So I had to tell my parents. I was like, they weren't they weren't home when all of this happened. So I had to tell my parents, hey, I just want to, you know, this is what happened when you guys were gone, literally running errands and buying groceries today. <laughs> so luckily I did because, I don't know, 15 minutes later, his dad showed up at the house and uh, started to threaten my dad, saying, like, my brother is the chief of police and I better not see your daughters hanging out with anybody uh, of the opposite sex. They better not have any guy friends. They're going to have a curfew. Uh, started to make lists and demands of my sister and I to my father, to which my father very kindly and sternly uh, told him if he does not leave, he was going to physically remove him from our home and that he will do no such thing. So this was the type of life we were living in in uh, Connersville, Indiana. So it took a little time to get over the whole Chris situation. We still had to go to school together, but whatever. But got through it. I was quiet, could pleasantly ignore him. And uh, we were now, my sister was a senior in high school, and it was prom, this was, you know. And uh, she was a cheerleader. I played sports. And uh, she was telling me one day, one of her friends, um, his name's McAllister, and he and I still follow one another in, on Instagram. He's a chef and a dad and a husband. He's awesome. Um, but McAllister and I uh, were, I just knew him through my sister, and he was a senior and I was a sophomore, and he was one of their star athletes. He played baseball. He played football. He was on the basketball team. And he was awesome. And he was telling my sister one day, like, yeah, I don't have a date for prom, like, uh, this this got canceled like you know I, I believe he had a girlfriend if memory serves me he had a girlfriend who something happened and she had to leave town I believe it was a death in the family and she had to leave town to to attend this funeral and unfortunately he had a tux rented he had tickets all the stuff he had and he didn't have a date and my sister got this idea and was like oh, you should take my sister like this is great she's shy she's pleasant like this would be fun she'll be a great date she'll just be your friend it's no big deal no pressure and so my sister asked me like do you want to go with to prom with McAllister and I was like yeah and you know everyone called him Kaika so she was like prom with Kaika sounds like so much fun we'll go as a group and I was like absolutely I would love to like what sophomore doesn't want to go to prom, the opportunity to go with their sister, who's my best friend, and also go just go with a friend and it's safe. It's, you know, it's no big deal. Well, was I wrong? Um, McAllister is a person of color and I didn't think twice about it. I didn't think the town thought twice about it. But you would have thought that uh, he and I committed the worst crime in humanity by the way the town and the school responded. Um, people found out we were going to prom together. There was an outcry. People were calling my home. People were calling his home. Um, they were making threats. We were getting threats on our lives. Um, 
trying to get us not to go to prom together. I remember one time we came home from church and our whole entire yard was covered with signs with derogatory uh, comments on them about, you know, uh, people of color and uh, calling me names, referring to me as very derogatory terms. Like here I am just a sophomore, like thinking I got a free ticket to prom (laughs) with my sister's friend and this is what's happening. And it got to the point where... um, my parents got really afraid and his parents got really afraid for us. Like there were threats. There were threats going on. I remember at one point they sprayed the football field um, with swear words, calling him derogatory, racial, racist names. Um, I mean, it got bad. It got so bad. And it was a form of intimidation and a form of of trying to make us n- not go. I don't I don't know what the deal was, you know, um, we weren't we were friends. We weren't he was a he was a star player on the team. Everybody was three weeks before this cheering his name in the stands when he was playing, you know, sports like I I to this day do not understand what's happening. And so um, my parents had to have a meeting. And a meeting with the school <laughs> and, you know, and I can remember my dad saying like, oh, uh, you know, there were this this whole like we're concerned for their safety. They probably shouldn't go uh, for their safety. Everything was like, let's not do this for their safety. We don't want to ruin prom for their safety. We don't want to ruin everybody else's prom because we don't want them to receive backlash, you know, for their safety. And my dad, uh, one thing about Bill Leg, we call him Steel Bill because he <laughs> gets these like righteous indignations of like what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And I will stand up for what's right. And he kind of got this little like, I don't know, this little wild hair in him. And he was like, oh, she, you know, she is now going to prom more than ever before with this man. Like they are going to prom together. They're going. And so I got nervous myself of like, I'm, we're going to die. Like we're going to go to prom. And, Cause that's how they were selling it. It was like, this is not safe. We were afraid for them. They set all kinds of ground rules. He and I were not allowed to go to the bathroom by ourselves. We were not allowed to go anywhere alone. We had to be in a group at all times. Like it was a crazy experience. And so um, I remember the night of prom, Hannah and I were getting ready to go. McAllister was in his tux. He looked so handsome. My brother-in-law, Jeff, came from Canada. And so he was this big, he was a big, bulky guy. So um, he was just muscle. I knew, I think he promised my parents, like, nothing will happen. I promise, like, we'll keep him safe, you know. And this little town in Indiana did this promenade and it was on the local television and at the this major theater that they had in the uh school it was called the robert e wise theater the robert e wise was the director of the sound of music food for thought and he is from connersville indiana believe it or not and so he donated a bunch of money to the school and they had this professional like grade theater attached to the school and so what they did was you would get in line, they would take your information, and then they would announce you to the crowd, to the whole town. It was videotape or it was televised. And you would basically walk on stage as they announced you. People would clap and cheer. You would then proceed to walk on through the theater, across the way into where the prom is at, at the gymnasium. And so anyway, Hannah, um, Hannah was a cheerleader. Her and I were on the French 
we were in French club. She did all kinds of things. And so her and Jeff were in front of us. We arrived together. They get their name. They get their information. And so it went something like, um, walking now down the promenade is Hannah Sr., who is a part of the French, you know, French club, who is a cheerleader on Connorsville Spartans cheerleading team. And, and they announced her and like with her escorting her today is Jeff Hyman, her boyfriend from Canada, blah, blah, blah. So they, everybody was cheering. Wow. You know, love Hannah. Yay. Great Hannah. And they walk on to their prom. And so here McAllister and I, and even though I was a sophomore, I had a long list of accomplishments. I was on the soccer team. I was on the volleyball team. I was a part of all these clubs. He played varsity baseball, varsity basketball, varsity football. He was also a part of all of these clubs. And so our roster was long. And so they comes our turn. We we approach the promenade and they start to announce our name. And as we walk across the stage, there is zero noise in the whole entire filled auditorium. It is quiet, like pin drop silence. And it was eerie. It was because he and I are walking. It was like a movie scene. We walk out. Not a not a person claps. No, nobody even. There's no shifting, coughing, nothing. And my mom, Rosette Leg. One thing about her is she is five feet tall. But that lady has some lungs and some vocal cords on her. This this little woman is. Uh, she can be as quiet and as loud as she wants to be. And it, as he and I are walking across the promenade in utter and uncomfortable silence, I hear. From the middle of the auditorium, one of the loudest whistles in the whole entire world. And my mom, she has this ability to make this like ear piercing whistles with her fingers. She can whistle with every single finger. And I all of a sudden heard like, what? Whoa! and it was my mom and my dad was cheering and screaming our names. And I like looked over to the side and to the auditorium where all the people were. And it was just my mom and dad standing up cheering and his mom and dad standing up cheering in an auditorium full of people. And he and I proceeded and walked on through the promenade and into prom. And not a soul bothered us. Not a soul talked to us. We danced. We had a good time. And at the end of the night, I went home and he went home. And that was it. But um, it has marked me for the rest of my life of like what it looks like to to do the right thing and what it also looks like when people are afraid. Man, when people are afraid of you and when people are afraid of what you're doing, even though it does, the fear doesn't even make any sense. The fear has, it, it is so illogical and makes zero sense at all. Um, they tried to stop McAllister and I from being together, even though we weren't even together. We were just having a good time together. But somebody had fear in regards to whatever that looked like and decided to put a stop to it. And a whole entire town in their own fear decided to back him up. And it took a Canadian man, a five foot woman who could whistle really loud, <laughs> and McAllister's parents to say, we're not going to do it. We're not going to be a part of it. And we're not going to feed into this fear. And they tried all kinds of, like I said, intimidation tactics. They tried to threaten. They tried to instill fear in us. They tried um, to do all kinds of things. And it it didn't it didn't work. And to this day, it's probably one of even though I kind of I knew what was going on, but I didn't see the severity of it. I would say it's one of probably the I'm my proudest moments of one of the things that I can say that I am proud that I stood up and did the right thing. As stupid as that is, it was literally going to prom 
but it was more so it became way bigger became a way bigger thing. It became people trying to decide for you what is right and what is wrong um, and messing with your own moral compass. And so I want to encourage anyone listening today that if um, you have the opportunity (laughs) to do the right thing, even in the face of difficulty, like you will only ever benefit. To me, looking back now, and looking back, you know, McAllister is married. He has a beautiful daughter, his beautiful wife, and he is a professional chef. And I follow him on Instagram. And every once in a while, I'll either send him a message and he'll send me a message of like, hey, remember that time we almost died? <laughs> remember that time we almost went to prom? We went to prom and almost died? You know, and it's like a, it's a joke now. But gosh, I don't know what it would feel like to look back and be like, I chickened out. I didn't do that thing because for him, it's it it showed him that there are people out there that will will stand up for him and will stand up for what's right, especially for something he can't control. You know, how can we control the color of our own skin and vice versa? Like, how can I control the color of my own skin? I can. I am. I am what I am, you know, and and he is just as as important as me and I am just as important as him. And he has gone on to be and do amazing things. So. I want to encourage you that to look back with regret is so much more worse than what it's like to stand up and do something brave. Because I tell you now, all the people that I cared about their opinions and what they thought and all of that stuff, um, I actually would bet money that the perpetrator of all of that nonsense were Chris and his dad. I could almost, I just, it's one of those things that I know in my guts that they are the perpetrators of all of that hate. And so I don't even think it was actually directed toward him, but I think they hit on something and they used something that people would jump on a bandwagon about. And so um, to this day, I don't care what wherever he is, what Chris and his dad thinks. I don't care about all the people that I went to high school with. I don't even talk to now. I don't even know who they are. I can't even remember their names. And their, their thoughts of what we did I don't care about, I never did. So if I allowed that to decipher and to dictate what I did with my life and how I lived, I'd be miserable today. I I would look back with such regret that I didn't get to experience something so amazing with such a good friend. And so I just want to encourage you that there are opportunities sometimes, even in small things at work, um, at and, and not even just about like racial tension, but about just doing the right thing. Sometimes just right is right. And you're witnessing somebody, you know, being bullied or picked on or or somebody is being made uncomfortable or, you know, you're noticing things like that. It happens all the time. It happens at work. It happens in grocery stores. It happens when you're shopping at, you know, Target. It's it's all over the place. And let me just encourage you that um, standing up for somebody, standing up for what's right, you will never, ever regret it. Never. You'll never, ever regret. The truth is the truth. It will always be the truth. You can't change it. You can't fight it. You can't turn it. You can't try to convince people that it's not the truth. The truth will always stand as truth. So be encouraged today. Anyway, uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye.